Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have a full crew here in studio. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Philip. Hey, Brad. Brian. Good morning, Brad. And we've got a special guest, Dr. Clay Briner, who's from Cross Country Genetics, is here with us today. Morning, Clay. Morning, guys. Cross Country Genetics has helped sponsor this episode, and they're go we're going to talk some about male fertility. We're also going to talk about uh, what's the value proposition of using some of these reproductive technologies. And then we're going to talk about genomic selection and maybe how that's a little bit different than just what we would think of as genetic selection. I'm going to have you guys explain to me the difference because you tried before we got on the air, but hopefully now you can get me through that process. Before we jump into those things, I, I wanted to, one of the books that we read to our kids was called Gloria, and it was Officer Buckle and Gloria was a dog, and Officer Buckle went and gave safety inspection. Have you, have you guys ever heard of this uh, book? No, I'm not no, tracking no, with you. No, I've yeah, never done all right. that one. So basically, one of his safety tips was don't stand on a swivel chair, and, and hmm. which was good. They were school safety tips, and Gloria the dog helped him explain them. So we were talking about this last night as we came up with some of our own safety tips for around the farm, like don't tie a halter to a t-post mm. that's mm -hmm. when you have an animal halter that's not a good place to tie them i wondered what safety tips you guys have for hanging out around the farm hmm. well so i'm going to go a totally different direction because it's funny you mentioned that because on at the airport last week going down the jetway i was listening to a family in front of me and the about you know 20 year old son is telling his parents that why he has his bruises on his arm is because he tried to use a swivel chair as a stool in his office. So See? apparently See? his don't parents stand. did not read that book. They should have read that child. book. We could get him Gloria. The, don't stand on a swivel chair. Do you have any, Brian, safety tips? Uh, I mean, the only, I guess, self-preservation tip is always close the gate because if you didn't and the cows get out, it's not going to be good. Yeah, that was, that was our other one. And in <laughs> fact, we had... Our, our second one that we came up with, and, and none of these are based on actual experiences, but uh, when the bull's in the pen, always two chains. Mm, so, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, you, you do want to make sure that the windmill is locked before you try to change the oil. Oh. That's important. Yeah, you don't want high Because you're up there and it... Yeah, Clay, you ready? Yeah, Brian stole mine. If you're standing <laughs> behind cows, always make sure the gate is locked between the one behind you and the one you're standing behind. Yeah, absolutely. So always good safety tips to, to follow. So if you have your own safety tip that we couldn't think of, you can certainly email us at bci at ksu.edu, or you can send us if you have a topic you'd like us to talk about. But we're going to start out today talking a little bit. We've talked a lot about female fertility, nutrition, getting ready to get the cows bred. This is actually a really important time of year for the males. If they haven't been turned out yet, we may be, we're basically preseason training for the males, right? They're coming up on uh, game day is in about a month for some of them. So what do we need to start thinking about relative to male fertility? And Clay, I'm going to start with you first. I pulled up some data from our, our, our system. And I think male fertility, like everything is, is a wide range. And when we look at it from a art or an advanced reproductive technology systems, we can see differences. So I pulled up two sires. Sire one had 447 collections and produced viable embryos at a 50.5% rate. Sire two had 379 collections and produced viable embryos at a 63.2% rate. So significant difference on significant number of collections. But in my opinion, you know, those data points work in the, in the system of ET, 
both of those bulls, if turned out natural service, would breed lots of cows. So I think when you're looking at male fertility, just like female fertility, you got to know what you're trying to achieve. If it is a natural service bull with fresh semen breeding 30 cows, it's one thing. But if you're trying to maximize embryo production, it is probably a different thing. And I think that's, that's a question I was hoping to learn today. How do you know when to choose that? How do you know? You know, you can always pick better, but in infertility, at some point, there is a plateau. How do you know when you've reached the plateau? And I think I think really good point, Clay, of it's different in ET than it is in natural service. And one of the huge differences in natural service, they're going to get multiple attempts, right? Whereas with ET, you're trying to achieve that fertility on on one shot. Bob, Bob, what are your thoughts? Well, and Clay pointed it out that one of the things we do for you know artificial insemination ET is freeze the semen. We freeze it and dilute it. And there's some things we don't understand. One is we have been doing freezing semen in beef cattle for many years, many uh, decades. And so we're quite good at it. But what we are not good at necessarily is predicting which bull's semen will freeze well. In that, just like Clay said, you could have a bull that on a breeding soundness exam has good motility, good morphology, and you know will get a lot of cows pregnant in a natural setting, but his semen doesn't freeze as well. And there's some things about that that we don't really know. And so my answer to how do I know which bulls will freeze well is I don't think I will until I freeze some of their semen and see how well the freeze-thaw process goes. Uh, and there are some definite differences that's even above and beyond the differences in fertility that you'd see just as a natural mating. So we don't know until you until you test them. So to Clay's question, should I turn them out or not? There's no tests to see if the bull's going to freeze and thaw well, other than to freeze and thaw their semen and check it. I, that, as far as I know, we, we would love to know that information. Um, but uh, a lot of times, and, and that's what, you know, if a producer has their own bull or if you just bought a bull as an investment that you're, that you're going to freeze semen, um, you know, a high percentage of them do freeze and thaw well, but but not all. And it is important to realize that our definition of fertility, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're an infertile, you know, that their daughters have any problems or anything like that. It's it's a specific characteristic of being able to, uh, to go through that freeze-thaw process. But a lot of times when we think about bulls, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch back to natural service, and to sort of to Clay's question, he talks about what are the differences in bull fertility do we have any way of even sorting that out, even if they're just going to natural service? We talked about freeze-thaw, but just going to natural service, which are the better and which are the worst? We have a little bit of an ability. So our breeding soundness exam is basically a good physical exam of the bull because we know, you know, just starting off that bull fertility is, is kind of sensitive to anything going wrong. So losing body weight, having an infectious process, you know, anything that can cause that bull to not have a great day can negatively affect fertility. So we start with a good physical exam, make sure that good bull is in good physical state, make sure he's on a really good diet that meets all his energy, protein, mineral needs. And then we evaluate his reproductive tract, you know, both the internal reproductive organs as well as the penis and prefuse, make sure all of that is healthy. And then we do an examination of the semen under the microscope. And we're looking there at, at sperm cell shape and motility. And basically a bull needs to pass all of those because a bull that fails any of those is probably going to have some real negative, you know, he's not gonna get very many cows bred. And so that is what we do with a breeding soundness exam. We're looking for those bulls that fail any of those characteristics because they're not a good breeding candidate. 
Now, this is where the limitation of that examination is. Once a bull passes that, we know that there's some differences in fertility. The number of cows that that guy can settle, you know, the, the success rate per mating, we know that there's some differences there. But our ability with the light microscope and a physical exam can't really tell the, that good enough bull from a really good bull. And again, we'd kind of like that information, but we don't have that. It's pass-fail, not graded. Yeah, it's sort of, I, and I agree with Bob. Like, when you get to the kind of the, I don't want to say the extremes, but when you get to the ends of that spectrum, a clear pass is a clear pass, and a clear fail is usually a clear fail. But when you get right around that tipping point of pass-fail, you, I mean, I've done enough BSEs where you feel, you say, you know, this is one of those bulls, like, He's a marginal, he'll pass, but he's marginal, or he'll fail, but he's marginal. And usually that entails a, a conversation with the producer about, you know, here here's the options. You know, we can either pass him or fail him based on this, just knowing he's really close to that, or we can recheck him, right? We can bring him back again and see if he, the whatever that is, you know, whether it's his sperm mortality, motility or his sperm morphology, if he's marginal in that let's bring him back and let's recheck him, you know, in 30 to 60 days and see if it's improving. Okay, great. Or if it's getting worse, then we know that. And so I, it, the, the motility morphology is a pass fail, but it's a, some, it's a little bit subjective, right? We can do counts and things to make it a little better, but when you get right on that cut line, I think there's some gradations where you say, well, he's not as good as the ones that are clear pass. Yeah, exactly. And Clay, what what other, Bob mentioned some of the tips, good nutrition, make sure those bulls are ready. What are some of the other things that you see that makes those bulls ready for the breeding season or other things you'd think about, whether they're doing natural or you're going to collect them? I, I think nutrition, age are all huge factors. And, and I think, you know, with the, on the heifer side, we're starting to do reprotract scores at pre-breeding. You know, we're not really BSEing bulls at the same age that we're doing reprotract score on heifers. Now, there's a reason for that. They wouldn't pass. The, the earlier you check, you would probably improve fertility. But at the same time, do you need to? It is a pass-fail test. As long as they're fertile enough, they breed cows. In our hands, we can select for some that can do better. This 13% difference makes an extra embryo per collection. To some people, that's important. But as long as they're getting cows bred in the pasture, that's what really makes the most importance to the majority of the beef people in, in the United States or in the world. That's all it takes. So it is pass-fail. I think sometimes we forget that because we can see so much data today that I don't know if it has a huge impact on the commercial cow-calf guy. Yeah, if we're doing live service, it's a little bit different. But that, that leads into our next topic where we wanted to talk about thinking about how do I figure if I'm assessing, okay, I might use a, a new reproductive technology, whether it's ET or IVF or some sort of technology, I want to think about what's my cost benefit. So give me some idea of what are some of the ways I would figure out how to, does this fit in my operation? Yeah. And, and today there's just so many choices and with everything in the world today, cost matters. So you just, you need to sit down with people that are involved in your system and talk to them about it. The, the cost per embryo is real and it depends on which system you're using. If it's conventional ET, it's cheaper. If it's in vitro produced embryos, it's more expensive. If you're going to try to control gender, if you're going to try to have known gender, you can even DNA and determine genomics at the embryo level. All of those things drive up the cost of production. So you're either trying to make lots of embryos cheaper 
or you're trying to make a few embryos that are more specific so that you can put in the correct ones. If you try to do that, it's going to cost you more and your conception rate's going to go down. So that's like a double impact on cost because as your conception rate goes down, it takes more expensive embryos or a higher number of expensive embryos to make kevs. So then you end up spending more money. That range is huge. You know, to produce a conventional embryo, you can make them for a hundred to $200 an embryo to make an in vitro produced embryo. It's going to be two to $500 an embryo. You start biopsying and looking at genomics. You're talking a thousand dollars an embryo, but you're trying to just make the right ones and you're not putting in all the ones you don't want to. So in some instances that looks like it saves you money, but it costs more money up front to find them. It just depends where you want to be, what kevs you want to make. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things to think about is, and you talked about cost to make embryos, but there's multiple ways to judge success. Philip, what are what are some of the ways that we might think about measuring that success? So Clay talked about just getting the embryos. What are some of the other metrics we might use? Just because you have the embryo doesn't mean you're going to get a live calf. So I think ultimately that's your goal is to have a live calf. And so you know, how many embryos does it take to get a live calf um, is, is a pretty good metric to look at, you know, or cost per live calf, however you want to do that, depending on what different technologies you're using to, use a, to get a live calf. And then I would assume, but maybe not, a survivability of those calves is the same, but maybe, maybe not. And so do you get that calf all the way to weaning? Yeah. So what, matter, what matters is that cost. If you look at it, it I have to get some return on it and I get a return when either I get that calf to weaning or not. And not only a live calf, but you talked about the genomic selection, the live calf I want, yeah. <laughs> right? So you get to actually, actually pick that. So if you're sitting down to, to figure that out, you probably need to figure all those costs and then you need to figure out what is my goal of doing this. And Philip, I like your point of it may be a live calf or a calf to weaning, or am I creating a new genetic offshoot for my herd, right? So that I'm bringing in something that's going to be reproductively in my herd valuable, in which case I may have to go until they have a live calf or they start producing yeah. calves, whether it's male or female, which means my return on this could be a longer term horizon. Do you see people thinking about it in that way, Clay, or how do people evaluate it? Yeah, I think everybody's, you know, it's amazing. Most of our producers are two, three years down the road. What they're making now doesn't sell for two years. So they're, it's it's exciting to watch them. They're still selling one this year, but they're really excited about the one that they're making that they're going to sell in two years. And it, it is agriculture is a such a you have to have such foresight to try to figure out where to go and have the value. And I think genomics is huge to make that happen. Well, and and I'll I guess I'll I'll take the other side of value. And and I I agree with everything you say. So I maybe I'm being a little facetious here, but. You know, we talk about has to make money and we talk about foresight. And I think for the vast, vast majority of producers, that is true. But I think I think there's also a place for some of this technology for um, kind of the sentimental producer. Right. You know, and I, I know one of those, you know, looking at what Clay said about that specific calf or a specific line or for some producers, there's some sentimentality to a certain line or a certain animal that they want to reproduce and keep around in their herd. So I think that 
completely ignores all the economic stuff we just mentioned. I think that's true, but I think there might be a place for, for these technologies there as well. Do you guys see that much, Clay? Yeah, definitely. From from the show circuit side, if you're trying to raise a show heifer out of a show heifer, that, that gets a lot of people's hearts warm. So, yeah, it happens a lot. Yeah, and you, st- and you still get a value. It's just right. not measured in dollars. Right. right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So I've got that value. I've got that return. But I think important when you're and Clay, you mentioned it right there at the start. There's a lot of those different technologies out there. And I would encourage people to figure out what the costs are, which is pretty easy. So you can go get a quote on the cost, but then figure out what's going to be your success metric and what percent do I think will make it there? Because it's really a cost per success that, that you care about. You mentioned a couple times genomic selection or managing the genomics. Tell me a little bit more. What are what are we talking about when that occurs? How does that work? Dr. Larson was covering that at the beginning, and I think you were you would be great at summarizing that. But we see f- things changing, and people are using genomics every day to determine which ones they will collect or which ones they will aspirate, so that they're just replicating that and selecting those higher genomic bulls as well. And our generation interval is going down rapidly. And our, our ability to increase numbers, and that's that number, is great. It's, it's going quicker. Is it the right number? That's what we always hope for. But Yeah, you know, you really look back in history, and, and of course, I think people that have been raising cattle have been making genetic selections for centuries. And for centuries, it was really about the, the eye, you know, seeing the phenotype, what the cattle looked like, how they performed. And we selected based on that, and, and we made some progress. We, we certainly changed cattle over the, over the centuries. But then, uh, you know, in my youth, we started, well, really the computer allowed us to take data that we were collecting, birth weights, weaning weights, yearling weights, those types of things, and, and build some within herd indexes so that I could kind of really divide my herd into the above average and the below average, because about half the cows are above average and about half the cows are below average. And so we moved that into the next generation. And then that pretty quickly moved into across herd EPDs, you know, within a breed across the herds. And that allowed us again to get, and we were collecting phenotypic information, weights primarily, but some other characteristics. And then you use the computing ability of a computer to kind of make fair comparisons so that I could select the best bulls across herd. Well, and then, you know, fast forward a few more years, and now we have uh, been able to go in and and take samples of specific places in the DNA. Because one of the things that, you know, if if I pick a really good dam and a really good sire, there's still diversity among those offspring. So anybody that has multiple siblings know that you're not all the same. So even a mating that on paper looks really good, there's some of those offspring that are gonna be genetically superior to others. And we weren't able to tell that difference with EPDs. But now when we have genomic tests where we go in and we can ask those siblings, well, which of you have the traits that I really want uh, with the genomic test? So it's just the next step in genetic selection. Well, I think a little bit different way to think about it, you know, we've always been making genetic selection and we've always been selecting for DNA differences and change in genes. But we were always looking at the phenotype and then trying to mathematically associate that back with the the parentage and do these offspring have the same type of genes or that the parents did and so then do you know is that the the type of genes that i want or the suite of genes i want now with genomics we can measure the genes they have we can measure the snips that they have in the genome and know very early on 
whether they have the same complement of genes as the parents do. So just even at the embryo level, we can determine that. So now we're much more accurate and, with, and we, can get, we can be much more accurate by incorporating that into our EPDs without nearly as many progeny from that sire. And so we can improve the accuracy at a very young age and we can decrease the generation interval. We can make genetic selection faster because of that more accurate information of what genes that animal is actually carrying. And one of the challenges we have with genomics though is very few of these traits are 100% predictable just off the genes, right? So, so we, I mean, we know what the whole, we can map the whole bovine genome. We, we can know everything that's in there but oftentimes the what we're interested in which it might be the the output it might be rate of gain or it might be weaning weight or whatever it is it's not one gene or two or it's not just that combination it might be a, a bigger combination that we're not maybe quite able to figure out yet or it's the interaction between a particular set of genes and the environment you put that animal in that produces that optimal outcome. So yeah, the genomic testing has come a long, long ways, but there's a lot of things we still have yet to figure out about how to actually use that tool in the best way from a production standpoint. So Clay, when you're employing this along with reproductive technologies, at what stage are you testing? Are you testing the embryos? Are you testing the cows? How do you, how do you use genomics to pick the right offspring? Most most clients are doing it at birth, honestly, and it, it used to be at weaning, but now they want to know as soon as they're on the ground, and and they'll joke about that's the quickest way to lose one is find the best one, yeah. but that's when they want to do it. The, the embryo world tried for a while, and you know it just it affected conception rate enough, and honestly, I think it's just too soon. You need some genetic diversity, so putting them in and trying to make eight full sibs and then finding which one is the best, I think helps with genetic diversity a little bit, but it, it didn't last as long as maybe the world thought it would to do it at the embryo level, but they're doing it as soon as they're born. So as soon as they're born, you're, you're using the genomic selection to pick which of those is best and then will be subsequently used to breed for the next year or the next generation, really, and then for, so on and so forth, which is where you mentioned that you're, if you're using genomic selection, there's some added test costs, some other things, which is what adds up on that cost per success that we talked about earlier. Is that right? Yes. Yep, sure does. But it adds value. Honestly, anytime you select a number, you're trying to find the best one and the best one somebody else wants and it adds value. Yeah, absolutely. And, and all of those things are, they accumulate and you're making genetic progress faster because the way you described it, Bob, I think is very good. When we did genetic selection with phenotypes, we made slow but consistent progress. When we added EPDs, we made faster consistent progress. And now with genomic selection, it's just going to speed it up, right? So we can make the changes that we want sooner rather than later. Is that an accurate I think assessment? That's, that's a fair assessment. So we appreciate uh, Dr. Clay Briner and Cross Country Genetics joining us today. A little bit of discussion on male fertility and value proposition of the technology. You're probably going to have to do some math to figure out which of those and talk to some folks that have done it before to get some of those estimates of success rate because that's going to make a big difference in, in whether it's cost-benefit to your operation. 
as well as wrapping up with genomic selection. So thanks, Clay, for joining us. As always, if you have questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to talk about, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.